right, you've got your worksheet there in front of you. I hope you do. If you don't, we'll get one to you uh, on Haggai. And uh, we've got a uh, simple outline, and then we've got an elaborated outline, and we're going to follow the simple outline tonight. But there's basically one chief theme with the book of Haggai. And this is the theme. First things first. Uh, do the work that needs to be done and do it now. Uh, there is a real keenness of the property of time in the book of Haggai. Or rather, should we say, the shortness of time in the book of Haggai. Uh, we'll read a little bit of this introduction material. I know it's lengthy, but there, I promise you there's a lot more that I didn't put on this page than what I did put on this page. There's a lot of history uh, behind the book of Haggai and what was taking place, but I believe we've got enough here to sort of get us started tonight. It says, the casual reader may not realize that when he moves from one book of the Bible to the next, he may be passing over a century of time. That is the case, for example, when he moves from Zephaniah to Haggai. In the intervening years, the world has changed. When Zephaniah preached, Assyria had not yet fallen. By Haggai's day, another world empire, Babylon, had come and gone. Judah had partaken of the bitter fruit of exile. Many Jews had acquired a taste for it. Those who at first had hung their harps on the willows and wept by the rivers of Babylon had been captivated by the bright lights and business opportunities of Babylon. A new generation had arisen, born and bred in Babylon. They were accustomed to its lifestyle and indifferent to the promised land and the scriptures. If the captivity had lasted another generation, the Jews might well have been totally assimilated and their light extinguished. Then came Cyrus, the Persian conqueror. Babylon passed into new hands and change was in the air. Cyrus's policy was to secure the goodwill of the gods of the kingdoms he ruled by supporting their worship. Accordingly, he reversed the policy of the Babylonians and issued a decree that not only allowed the Jews to return to their ancestral home, but also encouraged them to return. Now listen to this and think about this. Fewer than 50,000 Jews responded. Full of bright hope and rosy visions, they arrived in Jerusalem and undaunted by the rubble laid the foundation for their new temple. The mixed multitude of foreign colonists who called themselves Samaritans viewed the Jews' endeavors with cautious interest and offered to help. These colonists, who had been settled in central Palestine by the Assyrian uh, conquerors, had evolved a kind of polluted Judaism, a mixture of Jewish and pagan rites and beliefs. The leaders of the Jewish expedition, Zerubbabel the governor and Joshua the high priest, not wanting to compromise, categorically refused the Samaritans' offer. This refusal, not unnaturally, stirred up bitter resentment among the Samaritans, who then set out to oppose the reconstruction of the temple by every means in their power. They appealed to the Persian court and were successful in bringing the work to a halt. The zeal of the Jewish pioneers was dampened. Things were not as they had imagined they would be. They had pictured a land eagerly awaiting them, a land ready to blossom as a rose. Instead, they found a land grown sterile and overrun with weed through lack of cultivation. They found hostile neighbors, ruined cities, and shortages of life's amenities. So when official word came that the work must stop, the Jews tamely acquiesced. They looked with a kind of gloomy complacency on the weeds sprouting from the temple's new foundation, and since they could do nothing about the restraining order, they turned their attention to personal business. In 521 B.C., Darius Histopus uh, removed the usurper Pseudo-Smyrtus, who had reigned for only seven months and took the government of Persia into his own hands. 
When Darius came to the throne, the empire was in considerable disarray. Darius thought of a way to secure the goodwill of at least the Jews. By this time, they formed a considerable and influential body in the far-flung provinces of the empire. He would lift the ban on the rebuilding of the temple. So Darius reversed the interdict, and, uh, and thus the way was cleared to finish the product. The project, but the repatriated Jews had acquired other interests in the interim. Hence, a prophet was needed. Indeed, two prophets were needed to stand shoulder to shoulder, preaching in concord, so that out of the mouth of two witnesses, every word might be established. Haggai and Zechariah met that need. Haggai had only one concern: the speedy completion of the temple. Zechariah had a broader vision, one that took in the world, especially the world at the time of the end. Haggai's burning desire was to stir his people out of their lethargy and materialism so that they would resume their work on the temple. It was obvious to him that Jewish spiritual life could not survive the pressures of the contemporary environment or the pressures of coming events without the great, this great anchor for the faith. First things first was the essence of his message. So to give us a little bit of context, a little bit of background, the temple, the second temple, uh, what we would call the restoration temple or the uh, the uh, exile temple, uh, the foundation was laid and it had been left in that condition. For 16 years, the foundation of the temple laid there and nothing else was done. They had an official excuse to not do the right thing. But, you know, isn't that just like a Christian? I understand they were Jews, but isn't that just like God's people? Uh, the slightest little excuse to not do the right thing will keep us from doing. And so for 16 years, the temple foundation laid and decayed. And Haggai's responsibility was to try to light a fire into these people to go ahead and finish the temple. Uh, you know, we have a bad problem with priorities in the day that we live in. Uh, we have no trouble making Christ prominent in our life. And I, and I say this particularly to this group. I mean, you're here on a Monday night. A lot of other places you could be, should be, like the hospital, you know. I, I don't doubt that Christ is prominent in your life. But here's the question. Is he preeminent? Not is he the first before a lot of other things, but is he the first before everything? Not is he just one of the main things, but is he the main thing in your life? Pretty much nobody could fault these uh, Jewish colonists. I mean, they went when no one else went. It's really a pretty sad commentary on the state of Jewish spiritual life that when given the opportunity to return out of millions of Jews, only 50,000 answered the call. Did you know that out of those millions of Jews, there were thousands upon thousands of priests? And the book of Ezra records for us only 74 priests that returned. Such was the state of complacency and apathy amongst God's people concerning the rebuilding of his temple. You know, I would wonder this. If all the excuses were pushed away from why we don't serve the Lord, would we find out that the real reason we don't do it is just because we don't want to do it? For 70 years they had been in captivity. They had a pretty good excuse to not go back and rebuild the temple. And in that 70 years, I'm sure, especially the first generation, had a great desire to go back and rebuild it. But time does a funny thing to us. We grow comfortable with it. And we grow comfortable with our circumstances sometimes. And now when given the opportunity to do the right thing, they choose not to do the right thing. And I think it behooves us just to sometimes look at what we do and, and why we do it and ask ourselves, am I really doing all that I can for the Lord Jesus Christ?
So the book of Haggai has that as its basic background. The temple foundation has been laid and it's laid dormant for 16 years. The Jewish people have no real motivation uh, to refinish uh, or to finish the temple and to uh, begin the work anew and again. And so Haggai comes along to motivate them, to give them a vision from the Lord, to encourage them to get back to the Lord's work, to finish that which they've already begun. There is really no difficulty dating the book of Haggai because Haggai dates it for us. There are basically five visions that take place in the book of Haggai, and they are, I mean, excuse me, four visions, and they take place over a period of five months. So let's begin reading in verse number one. Let's read the first 15 verses here, the entire chapter. The word of God says, in the second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month, in the first, the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Let me pause there and say a word about Zerubbabel and Joshua. Uh, Zerubbabel was the grandson of the last king that had sat on the throne in Judah. And uh, he is sort of the rightful heir of that throne. You're going to find in the Bible that Zerubbabel, uh, in, a, in a typical way, pictures for us Jesus Christ, especially during the millennium. Uh, Joshua, uh, that's presented to us, this isn't Joshua the son of Nun. He's been dead for uh, many, many centuries now. But this is Joshua the high priest, and his grandfather would have been the high priest at the time that the Babylonians invasion had taken place. And so these two men are in a rightful position and they are in an influential position. And when given the opportunity, they do return. And uh, this is given uh, to them in their positions of authority. And the Lord says that, uh, well, let's read it again, verse 2. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Ye have so much, and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Let's pause there for one moment. I want you to notice that the first thing that the Lord tells them is to quit making excuses for not completing the work that was in front of. He gives it in sort of a tone of sarcasm. And you wouldn't really notice it if you didn't know some of the background. But actually, uh, the captivity that takes place to the Jewish people uh, was in two different factions, two different time frames of 70 years, and they actually overlapped one another. There was the carrying away, and that would be a period of 70 years. And then there was the desolations, and that also would be a period of 70 years. 70 years had passed since the Babylonians had first carried uh, them away in the captivity. Uh, you may remember, if you remember your history in the Bible, any, uh, that whenever uh, Nebuchadnezzar first came and laid siege to uh, Jerusalem and took away some of the people of Israel, uh, he left uh, some of the people. He only took away the choice for himself. That's the reason that uh, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were taken away. They were uh, sort of uh, the goodly people in, in the land. They were bright, young, healthy, uh, brilliant young men. And 
so they were carried away. That's the reason that Jeremiah was left there to witness some of the things that took place. Jeremiah was just a prophet. He didn't mean anything to the Babylonians. But the desolations that are spoken of in the Bible is another 70-year period that overlaps the first 70-year period. And that began whenever uh, the temple was destroyed. Now you say, why is this significant, preacher? Because the mindset of the Jews at this time was that we cannot do the work because that second time period of 70 years has not yet expired. In other words, can I put it in a practical way? They were using prophecy as an excuse for laziness. You know, I understand what the Bible says about these last days that we live in. Uh, you're not going to find somebody that loves prophecy much more than I do. I love prophecy in the Word of God. I love prophecy preaching. I love teaching on it. I love studying on it. Uh, I love prophecy preaching. I understand that we're going that in the day, last days, evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse. I understand that in the last days they'll be falling away. But let me say that just because evil men and seducers are waxing worse and worse, just because this world is not going to get better, it's only going to get worse, that's not an excuse for us to throw up our hands and quit serving Jesus. We still have a response, but there's still people to be won to Christ. There's still work to be done in this day that we live in. And so, uh, with sort of a tinge of sarcasm, the people had said that the time has not come that the Lord's house should be built. Saying it's not the right time to do this. It's not the time to serve the Lord in the capacity that people would expect us to. And boy, that's the excuse we give about everything, isn't it? I'm going to one of these days when I just get time. The time's just not right right now. Well, I'd ask you this. When is the time going to be right? And again, I'm not fussing at you. You're here on a Monday night. I mean, I understand. It, it, it's, you know, you, you don't, you don't get too many of the, the, you know, drinkers and crawlers on, on Monday night Bible study other than Jane, you know. I mean, I understand that this is the faithful crowd. I, I'm aware of that. But uh, even so, I think it's worth noting that when is the time to become faithful? When is the time to become faithful to your Bible reading? If now is not the time, when's it going to be a better time? When's it going to be a better time to start witnessing to people, giving out tracts, being testimony? When is it going to be the right time to start getting in the prayer closet and getting a hold of the Lord? The truth of the matter is, the only time that we're guaranteed is the time that we have right now. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. It's always time to serve the Lord. Always time to serve the Lord. And so, notice what Haggai says. Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Now, therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your way. Do you notice what he did there? The people were sitting around and saying, we don't have time to serve the Lord. It's not the right moment to do things for the Lord. And Haggai says, well, is it the right moment to build your own houses up? Is it the right moment to fill your own pockets? Is it the right moment to focus on all the cares and treasures of this world? You know, God's the author of sarcasm. We don't like to imagine that, but he is. And this is sort of God being sarcastic with them. This is God being caustic with them and cutting them to the bone. Because the truth is, though they didn't have time for the things of the Lord, they had plenty of time to work on the things of themselves. So basically the first theme of the first four verses is to quit making excuses. You won't ever serve the Lord until an excuse isn't good enough for you anymore. When you get to the place that an excuse isn't good enough for you, then you'll do something for God. But as long as an excuse is good enough for you, you'll never serve the Lord. 
We find a phrase used in all, really all through the book of Haggai. I believe it's used five times. But we found it twice here in these verses that we've read. And it's the phrase, consider your ways. And God is beckoning them to stop and think about what they're doing. And I think that's a very worthwhile and relevant thing for us to do. You know, a lot of times the way we do the things we do is by not thinking much about the things we do. Most of us, if we'd really stop and think about it, we'd come to a different conclusion about ourselves than we already have. Uh, let, let me give you an example. And I was joking with Brother Gary. I, I told him, I said, I, I, I sort of like it when folks come to, to church when they really, they're hurting too bad, because then I can browbeat other people about not being there. Amen? Right? You know, you can make fun of other people and give them a hard time. But really, when you stop and consider it, I, and I don't know, I mean, as far as I know, everybody here was in church Sunday. I, I, I Well, other than Gary, Sunday morning, but I think he had a pretty good reason. Yeah. <laughs> Brother, if you don't, then I never will. I promise you. I, I don't know if he was in church Sunday morning, but I, but I would ask you this. Be it last Sunday or two Sundays ago, we don't even have to talk about church. We can talk about reading your Bible. If you've missed reading your Bible, or if you've not prayed, or whatever it might be, whatever the reason was, is it going to hold up at the judgment seat of Christ? It is an excuse that you can give the Lord with your head hung high and say, Lord, I really did all that I could do. The way we avoid that is by not thinking about it. We just don't consider it. We just do it. And we don't consider our ways. Well, the Lord commands them in these passages to consider their ways, to think about them. But also not only to consider their ways, but to consider the results of their ways. Look again what he says in verse number 6. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages... Uh, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. So the Lord says this, is what you're doing getting the job done? Is it getting the job done? Now, God had providentially withheld blessing from them. And I think that truth is very valuable here. I mean, there's no question. What he's saying is, because you haven't put the Lord first, everything else you've been trying to do has, has been a failure. But I think if I was to give an application to it tonight, it would be this, is what we're doing working. Is it getting the job done? Is our Christianity getting the job done? Is it causing people to see Christ? Is it helping us to grow in our knowledge and relationship of the Lord? Is it building up the church? Is it building up our family? Is it working? Because if it's not working, that means there's something wrong. I'm not going to sit up here and tell you that you're never going to have hard times. You're never going to have times when it seems like you sow and 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 nothing grows and and it seems like things you're running your head against. Well, I understand there's times like that. But can I say by and large that the Lord wants us to succeed in our Christian walk? I mean, there may be dry times because God teaches us something through them, but, but by and large, I mean, the Lord expects us to succeed. He wants us to. He said he's given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. All things. That means we have everything we need to live for Jesus Christ. And if we're not living for him, then the deficit is with us. It's not with him. He's not done it. It's been us. Look at verse number 8. The Bible says, Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house. And I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. 
Now, this is interesting because you have to understand that whenever Cyrus first made the decree for them to go back and rebuild the temple, with that decree, uh, he said that he was going to furnish timbers and he was going to furnish materials and, and he had commanded all of the nobles and all the leaders in his provinces to, uh, to apportion a, a sum from what they collected as tributary from their lands to go towards the rebuilding of the temple. And it hadn't worked out that way. He says that in verse number 9. You looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts, because of mine house that is waste, and you run every man unto his own house. They were expecting to get a lot of help in building this temple, and it didn't work out that way. And so you know what the Lord's remedy is? He says, go up to the mountain, find you some trees, cut them down, mill them, saw them into timbers, bring them down, and build my house. We spend a lot of time worrying about what we can't do instead of doing what we can do. I preached a little bit on this last night in, in church. We, we started a series on Joseph and, and being a steward of our circumstances. And, and Joseph was carried away into Egypt, and, and there was a lot of things Joseph couldn't do, but what he could do was serve Potiphar to the best of his ability. So rather than sitting around lamenting on what he couldn't do, he just made up his mind to do what he could do, and the Lord blessed him and prospered him for it. And so the Lord's saying to them, don't worry about what you can't do. Do what you can do. We spend so much time worrying about things that are beyond our control and beyond our capacity when there's so many things that are within our control and are within our capacity that are laying there wasting away. I mean, here they were worrying about how they were going to get the curtains to hang up when there was nothing but a temple uh, foundation laying there. They were worried about the finishing touches, the paint on the wall, and the fixtures in the bathrooms, and yet there were timbers that could be cut down and be applied to the work of God. Sometimes even the work of the Lord is a matter of faith. We step out and we do that which we can do with what we can do it with, and wait for the Lord to prosper it and to bless it. He says, if you do this, I'll take pleasure in it and I'll be glorified. Verse number 10 says, Therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And I called for a drought upon the land, and upon the mountains, and upon the corn, and upon the new wine, and upon the oil, and upon that which the ground bringeth forth, and upon men, and upon cattle, and upon all the labor of the hands. He says this, Because you've not honored me, I've not honored you. <laughs> because you won't do with what you have, I won't give you more to waste. And he says that if you put me first, then I'd allow some things to take place in your life. Has it ever occurred to you that for God to bless us when we're out of his will is almost, in a way, God condoning our rebellion? Let me say that again. I don't know if you missed it or I missed it, but somebody missed it. For God to bless us when we're out of the will of God is, in a way, God condoning our rebellion. No, it didn't work that time either. <laughs> in other words, if your child was to do something wrong, and instead of whipping them, you were to reward them, what would that tell them? It'd tell them that they were right in doing wrong. When I was growing up, if I did something wrong, my daddy didn't take me out and buy me an ice cream cone. He whipped me. Because he wanted me to have a clear understanding that what I did was wrong. It wasn't okay, and it wasn't allowed. Well, the Lord's a good parent. You ever stop and think about that? The Lord is a good parent. And when we're not living right, he doesn't allow us to think that everything is all right. And so for the children of Israel here, because they had neglected the Lord's house and had instead focused on themselves, the Lord says, I've shut up heaven from you, 
and I've not allowed my blessing to be upon your life, said you've got to do the right thing before I can bless you in the right way. Now look what it says in verse 12. We see here, the first thing is to stop making excuses, and the second is to start considering your ways. But the third is to begin to serve the Lord. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people did fear before the Lord. Then spake Haggai, the Lord's messenger, in the Lord's message unto the people, saying, I am with you, saith the Lord. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and did the did work in the house of the Lord of hosts their God. Now, let me just stop and let's notice the progression here. Did you notice that obedience came before the blessing of the Lord? It does not say that here they are in their rebellion and God stirred them in the Spirit, filled them with the Spirit, and then they went and did the work. It says first they obeyed. The obedience came first. This always the progression in the work of the Lord. Obedience comes first. Then the moving and working of the Spirit of God. And then and then alone can the work commence. The reason our churches are failing in the day that we live in is because we've, we've tried to do this in a backwards way. We've tried to get 10% of the people to do the work for the other 90% of the people, and get the work done, and then through doing that work, hoping that we can stir up some kind of spiritual movement and revival and awakening, and then after that, and only after that, we hope that people finally get right with God and obey the Lord. Isn't it just like men to do things backwards of how the Lord does? The first thing that had to take place was obedience. And never has there been a prophet before or since that had the reception Haggai did. Uh, Jonah, uh, no doubt, was uh, received well in Nineveh. Uh, from the king to the cattle, they repented. But what takes place here is of a more uh, vast, eternal Impact Because the Bible says that every single person, from Zerubbabel to Joshua to all the children of Israel, obeyed the voice of the Lord. It began with obedience. The way that we, you know, we, we always want to feel something before we'll do something. But that ain't how it works. I'm not against feelings. Feelings are a powerful thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. God made us as emotional creatures. And I don't think that's wrong. And I don't think that's anything to be ashamed of. But let me say this, that for, if a feeling comes from God, it's going to come in response to obedience. Because we've been obedient to his word. Uh, just emotional fervor is not enough to get the job done. It takes obedience. And it takes dedication. And so after they had obeyed, there is a spiritual thing that takes place. This was not something that was just through sheer motivation. The Bible says that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and Joshua and of all the high priests. Uh, he stirred up their spirit within them. And so they began and commenced the work. The Bible says in the four and twentieth day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. So the first message is a message of conviction in chapter number one. Now I want you to notice the second message in chapter number two. We see a message of comparison. Look at the first three verses. The Bible says, In the seventh month, in the one and twentieth day of the month, came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and to the residue of the people, saying, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? 
And how do ye see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Now, this is interesting what the Lord has Haggai say, because at that time, you know, 70 years had passed. And so there weren't a lot of people that had been around, but there were some of the older men, and the Bible tells it about us, uh, tells it to us in uh, Ezra, that uh, when the foundation had been laid, that all of the old men wept and all the young men rejoiced. The old men wept because they had seen the temple in the days of Solomon. Now, there's no question there was a vast difference between the temple in the day of Solomon and the temple uh, of those that had come out of exile. I mean, we can't even fathom the beauty and splendor of Solomon's temple. Everything around it was overlaid in gold and in fine gems. The magnitude of Solomon's temple just in and of itself would be enough to boggle the mind. It was one of the unsung wonders of the world whenever it was built. And now here they look at this simple, unadorned foundation in front of them. I don't know how much they had finished in this month time between when the Lord stirred them up to the work and whenever the voice of God breaks through in Haggai and says this. But there's no question there was probably some discouragement in the hearts and minds of the older generation. Uh, you know, I, I love old people. I, I, I pastor some, you know. I've always been the type of person that identified with older people. I really don't like young people. Uh, I, I mean, if I wasn't married to my wife, we'd have problems, you know. I, I, when I spend time around people, I spend time around older people. But let me say that there's a grand and great danger. And, and far be it from me, other than in the, the, the petty office I do have as a preacher and pastor, to say something like I'm about to say. But there is a great danger in older people pouring cold water on what the Lord's doing in the lives of younger people. We're getting ready to do camp. We struggle every year after camp. I do personally watching what our young people have to go through. You know, you hear people talk all the time. If you've been around camp ministry, you'll hear people talk about, oh, that's just camp religion. What they mean is, yeah, that young person is worked up now, but they won't be two months afterwards. And I'll go ahead and tell you that it's true. A lot of young people, they come come back on fire for God, and it doesn't take long for that fire to go out. But I can't tell you the times that I've seen parents be the very ones waiting with buckets of water the second those young people walk in, handing them the same trash, the same music, the same clothes, the same movies that those kids had sworn off forever when they was up at camp. I've seen parents say things like this, I'm not buying you new clothes, I just bought you a whole set of new clothes. Well, you're not going to throw that movie away. I paid good money for it. I've seen parents say things like this. I've seen kids come back, and when they see their parents, the first thing they say is, I want to go to church on Sunday. And I can see it in the parents' eyes, and they look at them, and they say, well, we'll see. We'll see. We've got people, and, and, and the only person that ever pried from my heart and mind who I'm talking about would be uh, the Lord God of heaven, because I'd never say anything. Uh, that would give you a negative opinion about anybody. Well, that's a lie, but, you know, I'd try not to. I'd try not to. But I've got people in my mind right now, I'm, uh, parents that I know of right now, that they are the chief reason that their kids don't live for the Lord. And I don't just mean that they don't lead their kids in living for the Lord. I mean they actively hinder their children in living for the Lord. There's a great danger, and you need to understand that sometimes... 
I, I know we always think of young people as being rebellious and hard-headed and, and stubborn, and, and they are. I understand that. Old people are too, young people, middle-aged people. I mean, dogs are that way. Everybody's that way. That's just the nature of things. But understand that with age comes responsibility. And you got people looking to you, and your opinion means something, and it matters. makes a difference in people's lives. I say that as a young pastor. I was very blessed, and still am very blessed uh, here at Wall Ridge. I, mean, I never really, I, I never had anybody really withstand me or, or try to stand against me or anything like that. Or if they did, I didn't know about it. Uh, you know, I always had a lot of support from people and, and was always very blessed by the, the encouragement that our people, particularly our older people in our church, have been. But when you're a young pastor and you talk to other young pastors and know the things that they have to deal with, let me just say sometimes it's a great bit of discouragement when a young person is rejoicing and an older person comes along and dumps cold water on what the Lord's doing in that young person's life. The older people were saying, this is nothing in comparison. And so the Lord in His compassion and tenderness answers that. And He says, it's true, this house is not anything in comparison. There's no question it's not as great and as wonderful as Solomon's temple was. But then he asked this question. Was it the gold and the jewels and the gems that made the temple what it was in the first place? Look what it says in verse number 4. The Lord gives four promises, four uh, commandments, encouragement, promises, whatever you call it. And he begins by saying this, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord. And be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek the high priest. And be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord. And work, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. I don't know if you remember, but if you've read your Bible, you might remember this, that the Lord wasn't too keen on having a temple in the first place. David said, I want to build you a temple. The Lord said, you think you can build a house worthy my name? He said, I've dwelt in tents all these years. Since I led you out of Egypt, I've dwelt among you in tents. The Lord says, I was willing to bless a, a, a tabernacle made of badger skin and, and, and goat skin with my glory and with my presence. The Lord says, even with this little group of people, with this timber frame temple that will not command the awe and the glory of this world, he says, I'm with you. I'm with you. And let me say that anything the Lord does is a wonderful thing. may not be big in our eyes, but it's a wonderful thing. You know what he says in the book of Zechariah? We'll get to it next week. But he talks about those that despise the day of small things. One of the things I had to learn when I started pastoring was to appreciate the small victories. Sometimes that's the only victories you get. Uh, you know, I, it, it's hard when you've got friends and they, you know, they pastor churches of substantial size. You see people saved week after week after week. And sometimes there's a danger in not appreciating the things that the Lord's doing in your own flock and in your own church. Let me tell you something. When I see somebody get right with God, that's a big thing. I mean, I'll print it in the newspapers, but that's a big thing. When I see a family get in church that's not been in church for five, ten years, that's a big thing. When I see one of our young, you know, we got kids everywhere at this church. I mean, we got, they're half a million dollars. We don't even know where they come from. We got some kind of child to run through, and I don't even know who he belongs to. And week after week, without, without fail, I, I bet you in, in, in one service a week, one of those little ones will be down at an altar. I know that they may be too small to really understand a lot of what they're doing. But let me tell you something, that's a step in that young person's life. 
Anytime a young person is going to an altar instead of going to a TV, that's a good thing. Anytime they're going to an altar instead of going over to that friend's house, it's going to lead them astray. That's a good thing. We ought to rejoice in that. And anything that the Lord's in, it may not command a lot of attention. They may not talk about it around town, and it may not be something that gets printed in, in every newspaper, but it's something special if the Lord's in it. We ought to rejoice in it. The Lord says, I'm with you, be strong. Verse number 5, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you. Notice this, he says, fear ye not. He says, I, at this time there was assaults coming from every direction on this little group of Jewish people. Uh, hostility is nothing new for a Jew. <laughs> they dealt with hostility ever since that they came into existence. But I'm sure it was discouraging for them that in the midst of trying to serve God and trying to do the right thing, you know, there wasn't any opposition when they weren't serving the Lord. You notice that? And that's how it is in your life and mine. There's no opposition when we're not serving God. Oh, we may have the, the result of our own disobedience, but we don't fight the spiritual battles when we're not serving God that we fight when we are serving God. And they had made up their mind. I mean, God had done something mighty amongst them. Haggai had spoken. The people had obeyed. The Spirit of God had moved. The work had began. And then all of a sudden, all of this opposition comes from every side. And they grow fearful. I've seen it happen a hundred thousand times. Where somebody will get right with God, and all of a sudden the devil comes stalking along to destroy their life. And they get fearful, and that's normal, that's natural to be fearful. But understand that greater is he that is within you, or he that is with you, than he that is with the world. Uh, God's greater than the devil. He always has been, he always will be. God's greater than the opposition. If we're doing the work of God, we have nothing to fear. So he says, fear ye not. Notice verse number 6. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. So we see in this verse that glory will come. Did not look like it at that time, but there was a promise that glory and the glory of God would arrive. Now, just as with many of the minor prophets, this has a twofold application and a twofold uh, realization. Uh, certainly it does look beyond the pale of time and looks to the day when the Lord will sit upon uh, his throne in Jerusalem. Uh, but there's a lot of debate about what this desire of all nations means. And I'll go ahead and tell you what I mean, but there is, there is debate about this. But when it says the desire of all nations shall come, I believe that's talking about Christ. And I believe that's talking about Christ in his first coming. Do you realize it was this temple, or one Solomon's temple, that Christ went into and was consecrated at when he was born? It wasn't Solomon's temple that he went into and answered and asked questions when he was 12 years old. It wasn't Solomon's temple that he went into and made a whip and drove the money changers out and called that place his father's house. It was this temple. Herod, and you'll hear sometimes when they talk about temples, you'll hear about Herod's temple talked about. Uh, and it was Herod's temple, but Herod's temple was merely just a, a renovation of the temple they had built when they came out of exile. And so this was the place that the Lord would come and would minister in, and would minister around. 
And so, in a way, this temple had something that Solomon's temple never had. Then, of course, it does have a view, an eye, to the end times when the Lord will set up. By the way, Ezekiel's temple, the millennial temple that's spoken of in the book of Ezekiel, uh, is modeled sort of after this temple that we're talking about tonight. Look at verse number 8. We see another promise. God will provide. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place... Well, I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, if, if ever there was an unlikely promise in the word of God, it's that one. If you had been standing there that day, and again, we have sort of a, a grandiose mentality about all of the Bible scenes. You know, we, we see them in, as being very epic in nature. But understand that if you'd been standing there with them on that day, you'd have the old generation weeping and criticizing and complaining. You'd have the young men bewildered and discouraged at what was taking place. You'd have people keeping watch on the horizons uh, for opposition, for hostility, for, for bandits and, and, and for, for uh, people that were going to vandalize the place. This was not a very encouraging scene. But in the midst of this, God says that this house, the place where you stand, the glory of it is going to be greater than Solomon's. Why would the glory be greater? The glory would be greater because the presence of God would be more real in that house. And there again, as we consider the work of the Lord, and I'm just going to make a very practical application of this, let me say that, that the greatest thing we can desire for the work of the Lord is that the Lord of the work be in the midst of it. That's the greatest thing we desire. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of mechanics that goes into church today that hasn't for a long time. We all we have all these formulas, we have all these plans. We're always waiting for the the next latest greatest program or or policy to straighten things out. Let me tell you something. I, I would a lot sooner pastor a church that that never ran more than what ours does today if God was in the midst of it than have to build three buildings and pack them in and have thousands and so many that don't even have never even shook my hand if God wasn't in the midst of it. I'm not speaking negatively about churches that are blessed numerically. That's a wonderful thing. I think it'd be wonderful if we were blessed numerically in that capacity. I'm not being critical or negative of that, but I'm just merely saying that the primary thing is that is that the God of all creation is in the midst of what we're doing. If he's in the midst then we ought to be satisfied with what we're doing. The glory of this temple was going to be greater because God was going to be in the midst of it. In a way, he hadn't been in the midst of Solomon's temple. Uh, in that day, when Christ sits upon the millennial throne, the presence of God in this world will have greater impact than it ever did in the day that Solomon sat on the throne in Jerusalem. So God makes these promises. It's a message of comparison. Look at the next verse. We see a third message. It's a message of contamination. Now, this is interesting. Uh, there's a little bit of a word picture here. You've got you to really pay attention to what's said. Verse 10 says, In the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priests concerning the law, saying, if one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, or with his skirt do touch bread or pottage or wine or oil or any meat, shall it be holy? And the priests answered and said, No. Then said Haggai, If one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, shall it be unclean? 
And the priests answered and said, It shall be unclean. Then answered Haggai and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, saith the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and that which they offer there is unclean. Now what's the Lord saying in these verses? Well, understand that first we see a question of defilement. Now something about what he's asking. The Lord says, Haggai, I want you to go to the priests and ask them a question about the law. If the priest, in his holy garments, in that which God had ordained that were considered clean and pure, if he took an ordinary piece of meat or, or a, a, a flask of oil or, or, or maybe a bottle of, of new wine or whatever it might be, if he took that and placed it in his skirt, would that then, by virtue of touching that skirt, become holy? The priests say, no, it wouldn't. Then Haggai says, okay, let me ask you this. If someone was to touch a, touch an unde, a, a dead body and become ceremonially unclean, and then was to go and uh, touch any of these things, would they then become unclean? The priests say, yes. Here's the lesson he's trying to teach. Holiness is not catching, but pollution is catching. Holiness is not something that's transferred by proximity. But wickedness is something that is transferred by proximity. You see, one of the first things they did when they came back after they laid the temple was they built a temporary altar there so that they would have a place to come and offer sacrifices. Uh, one of the reasons there's so much you hear people talk a lot about the red heifer. Uh, if you watch any of the, any of like the charismatics do a lot of prophecy stuff and, 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 you know, papers and stuff, you'll hear people talk a lot about the red heifer. And the reason they talk about the red heifer is because they believe that the Jews for generations have been trying to genetically modify and breed a red heifer that is similar to what they would have had in the Old Testament. The reason is because the way that the utensils and the priests and everything involved in the work of God was purified was they would offer the red heifer and uh, they would burn it up and the ashes would be added to water and then that water would be used to sprinkle or to bathe the utensils and the priests and that's how they would become holy, ceremonially pure and clean. It's what uh, Paul's talking about in the New Testament when he says uh, that our consciences have been sprinkled from dead works, purged from dead works. Uh, he's not talking about sprinkling in the sense of baptism, but he's saying that through the death of Christ we've been made pure to approach unto God in the way that the red heifer in the Old Testament was used. And so they had to have a place to sacrifice so that they could be ceremonially clean while they commenced the work. But this is what happened. Over those 16 years, they continued to offer sacrifices even though the work wasn't going on. In other words, they continued to worship even though they weren't working and their life wasn't right. And what the Lord is saying is this, that altar does not sanctify that which is offered upon it. That which is offered upon it must be sanctified for it to be received. In other words, just because you build an altar, and just because you burn an animal on it, that doesn't mean that it's a fit sacrifice for me. Can I put it in common, I mean just modern understanding? Just because you go to church, that doesn't mean you've met with God. Just because you dress up and you carry the right Bible and you've got the right look and you go to the right church and you hear the right kind of sermon and you sing the right kind of songs, you shake the right people's hands, that doesn't mean that you've met with God. See, everything can be right and us still be wrong. It doesn't work the other way around 
by the way. You can't go to the wrong church. And when I say the wrong church, I don't mean any church other than all. But I mean a church, you can't go to a church that doesn't stand on the Bible. You can't carry a Bible that's not the Word of God. You can't go and give less than your best. You can't go and listen to something that isn't preaching and expect to meet with God either. I'm not implying that. And God's not implying it either. But what He is saying is that just because you do everything right, if you're wrong, that doesn't mean that you're right. We've got to be right personally. So we see in this passage a question of defilement. But then in verse number 15, what does the Lord say? The Lord says, And now I pray you, consider from this day and upward, from before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the Lord. Since those days were, when one came to an heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came uh, to the press fat for to draw out fifty vessels out of the press, there were but twenty. I smote you with blasting and with mildew and with hail in all the labors of your hands. Yet you turn not to me, saith the Lord. Consider now from this day and upward, from the fourth and twentieth day of the ninth month, even from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed yet in the barn? Yea, as yet the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree hath not brought forth from this day will I bless you. What the Lord says is this, your life's not been right, but you've made it right today, and so from this day I'm going to begin to bless you again. God's trying to draw a clear distinction between a life that's lived in harmony with Him and a life that's lived in disobedience. He's saying it's not that you weren't offering sacrifices, it's that you weren't clean. Let me say that in our lives, it's not, you know, it's not that we need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We don't need to say, well, because my heart's been not been right, uh, even though I've been in the right place or been doing the right thing, I need to quit doing the right thing or quit being in the right place. What it means is they both need to be right. I've said this before, that one of the things that the devil's good at, and this is how mean the devil is. I, I mean, listen, I don't hate any human being, but I do hate the devil. And, and, and let me tell you how wicked the devil is. The devil will come along to somebody, and, and you've probably heard me say this before, but I, I feel like it needs to be said again. The devil will come along to somebody and tempt them, and they'll sin and get their life out of harmony with the Lord, and then they get unhappy and they get miserable, because any Christian not living for the Lord is unhappy and miserable. And the devil will come along and say, you know what the problem is? The problem is church you go to. Or they'll come along and say, you know what the problem is? The problem is the spouse you're married to. Well, the problem is the kids that you have, the job that you work, the place that you live. He'll begin to whisper all these things in your ears, tell you that's the problem. I've had people say before, and, and I think I said this a few weeks ago, but you know, I've had people that, that haven't been in church for a year and a half say, well, things have just changed down at church. Well, they want to know. They ain't been here in a year and a half. I've had people come sometimes and they'll say, well, things are just different. Nothing's different. What's different is they're different. I'm not saying that, that churches don't have problems. I'm not saying our church doesn't have problems. Sure it does. But I'm just merely saying this. The problems aren't always the preacher or the church or the people at the church or your spouse or your kids or your coworkers or your boss. More often than not, the problem is us. That's usually who the problem lies with. It's not to say it can't be any other way, but most of the time, that's the way it is. And so all of the devil will come along, and, and then by the time someone's quit on church, left their spouse, left their family, quit their job, got their life in total disarray, and they're still not happy, the devil will come along and whisper a laugh in their ear and say, you know, it never was any of those things. 
And then their life is just in a mess. And they've got to rebuild it. The Lord says the problem was an internal problem, not an external problem. The problem wasn't that that necessarily that the temple wasn't built. It wasn't that it didn't have the glory of the first house. It was an internal problem. And the Lord says you fix that internal problem. And so from this day forward, I'm going to bless you. We'll see a final message and we'll just touch on this and then close. Look at verse number 20. We'll see a fourth message, a message of coronation. It says, And again the word of the Lord came unto Haggai in the fourth and twentieth day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. It's interesting language. The throne of kingdoms. One throne that rules over multiple kingdoms. He's talking about the kingdom of the Antichrist. And I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen. And I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them. And the horses and the riders shall come down, everyone by the sword of his brother. So, as many of the other uh, minor prophets do, this begins to look beyond the spectrum of the church age, and God's giving a promise to this little remnant of Jews concerning the coming Messiah. And he says this, that there's coming a day when all these kingdoms will be destroyed, and my king will sit upon the throne. Uh, let me say that that promise is still true today. That's still going to happen. Christ is still returning. When he returns, there'll still be a faithful remnant of Jews that have come through the tribulation period and have turned in faith to Jesus Christ as their Messiah. They won't be a faithful remnant because they're adhering to the law. They'll be a faithful remnant because they have looked to Jesus as their Messiah and as their Savior. So he says there's a coming judgment and a promised Messiah. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take uh, will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, saith the Lord, and will make thee as a signet, for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. But what's a signet? We'll just say this in closing. When he speaks of a signet, he's speaking about the royal ring that a king would wear. And with that, there are, some people would call it their royal seal. That, that was a picture of their authority. What they would do whenever they'd make a letter, as you've seen them, you've seen it in movies and picture shows, you may have even done it yourself. Uh, they'd take the stick of wax and they'd heat it and they'd drop some on a, a letter or a scroll or, or something. And in lieu of a signature, they'd take that ring and they'd press it into that soft wax and it would leave the impression of their authority. And that was a symbol in their absence that their authority was present. And the Lord says to Zerubbabel, now we know it's not going to be Zerubbabel, but that he's a picture, he's a type. Zerubbabel has long since died. But he's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ who will rule on this earth. He'll be the authority of God. The Bible says he'll rule with a rod of iron. And uh, that little temple, that, that what a small beginning that was. That little temple, it, it was so small that, it, that just, just the responsibility of it wasn't enough to motivate them to commence the work of the temple and to finish building it. And the Lord says, I'm going to do big things with this small beginning. That's how the Lord does everything. Everything big that the Lord does has a small beginning. And so, and like I said, we'll look at it next week, but, but along with the exhortation given in Zechariah, we ought to be careful about despising the day of small things. Because big things begin with, with small beginnings. Uh, it was said that D.L. Moody was led to the Lord by a Sunday school teacher that he had. 
And uh, who could have imagined that little 12-year-old boy uh, named Dwight, that that Sunday school teacher had led the Lord, that he'd be responsible for over a million souls coming to Christ. Just a small beginning. You never know when that little kid that doesn't seem like much is going to be the next one that God uses to reach a generation. You never know when that little bit of work that you're doing will be the foundation God uses to do something great. And so I think if it does anything for us tonight, I'll motivate us to get busy serving the Lord, to do away with excuses and to just get busy doing what God would have us to do, to make something of our life matter for the Lord Jesus Christ.